I stack the American natural resource environmental record up against any country in the world. And that's the crazy thing about Biden's plan. Uh, Biden's plan is let's get oil and gas from the Soviet Union. Let's get oil and gas from Venezuela. Let's get oil and gas from Iran, who couldn't give uh, a darn about how they leave the planet. I mean, parts of the Soviet Union are a moonscape, uh, unlivable today simply because they don't have our environmental ethic. But we have a good environmental ethic. And when Biden says, oh, we want somebody else to get this and send it to us, you look where they're getting the cobalt. They got little kids, basically infants, going around, you know, on their hands and knees gathering the cobalt we're going to use in our electric vehicles because we're protecting the planet. It's positively insane. So I think we have the laws uh, that exist out there. But the environmental movement uh, it didn't go away. You know, what we said back in the, in the day regarding the environmental movement, it was the watermelons. They're green on the outside and red on the inside. They didn't want to really save the planet. They wanted to be in control. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have another fantastic episode for you guys today. This is season three, episode three. I feel like that that rhymes in a way that makes sense if you think about it really hard. And we have a, a really cool guest for you guys today. I guess the second uh, uh, person of the West uh, in in recent memory. We had on Michael Gibson last week, and this week we have on William Perry Pendley, who served as the Deputy Director of Policy and Programs for the Bureau of Land Management at the Department of Interior in the Trump administration. Before I get to that, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can see all of the fantastic programs we have cooking, uh, whether it's our Fellowship for American Statecraft, Foundations of American Statecraft, events that we have upcoming, Amcanon, and so much more. You can find the backlog of this podcast on you know, over 90 episodes strong, like 150 hours of content at this point. If you have long drives ahead of you, there's nothing better you can do with your time than have my beautiful voice in your ears 24 <laughs> 7 um and we just had a fantastic episode with with perry uh he is a real cowboy uh he came in with his bolo tie as i expected him to and he's just got a ton of fantastic stories about how you know one third of the american landmass is controlled by the federal government and all the waste that that's leading to all the opportunities for us to become more resource independent to develop to grow to have blue collar jobs are being wasted all because of a bunch of anti-human environmental activists that uh, really don't have anything in common with you or i when we think about conservation properly understood you know i think episode three of moment of truth first season was with micah metacroft who has really uh thought through what it would mean to uh be a, a conservationist as a conservative and and none of what uh perry says is in tension with that at least i don't think so um there is just so many more things we could be doing with our land that would make us a more prosperous country um and and put it back in the hands of the people who understand it best in the American West. And uh, we learned all about that and his times in both the Reagan and Trump administrations uh, and and what he did at the Bureau of Land Management, what they should be doing, and so much more. I thought it was a fantastic episode. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, it's over, as you said, over 90 episodes in and we still find, uh, you know, new cool guests with new perspectives on, on different issues to talk to. Uh, we covered a lot today. You know, we talked about... Um, 
the development of the uh, nuclear bomb and uh, testing it near highly populated areas. Uh, you know, we talked about um, oil and gas leases, offshore drilling, Keystone XL, um, learned a lot about the way the federal government um, improperly manages um, our, uh, our land. So yeah, very exciting and, and very niche episode, but very excited to dig in. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll go now to uh, William Perry Pendley, a patriot uh, and uh, one of the coolest and most stylish guests we've ever had here on Moment of Truth. Perry, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, great to be here. Thanks. We always love to hear about our guest's background, and you certainly have an interesting one at that. Why don't you tell us the story? You've had a long uh, and interesting career. How'd you get to where you are today and, and, and where'd that path lead you? Well, I was born and raised in Cheyenne, Wyoming. My my mom was a true coal miner's daughter. She's from Harlan County, Kentucky. She always called it bloody Harlan County. My dad was a railroader. He was out of uh, the uh, the Ozarks in Arkansas. Uh, neither got past the fifth grade. They happened to meet in Cheyenne, and I was born there. Uh, first uh, member of my generation ever to go to get out of high school. Uh, go to college, go to law school. I, um, you know, I could have uh, gone an athletic scholarship, swimming scholarship, uh, University of Wyoming. Uh, I came to George Washington University here in Washington, D.C. Simply, I had a, a kind of a mentor, a lawyer, a guy who was born in 1881. And he says, uh, if you want to be in the politics, interested in politics, go to D.C. And I worked uh, here. I got my master's at the George Washington University. Uh, I was in... Uh, I was briefly at law school, and then the, the Vietnam War was on, so I joined the Marine Corps. Uh, I went Marine Corps aviation. I was too tall to be a pilot, so I was in the back seat. Uh, <laughs> uh, the guy in the back uh, told the pilot where to go. Uh, then, uh, then my wife and I went to law school, University of Wyoming. Uh, uh, we graduated in 76. There are no jobs in Wyoming, especially for husband and wife uh, lawyers. So I came back to Washington work worked for the man I'd worked for, when I was in college, Cliff Hansen, senator from Wyoming. Uh, and uh, uh, I worked for him, and then he uh, left Washington. I went over on the House side, worked for the House Interior and Insular Affairs Committee. Don Young was one of my mentors, uh, uh, Steve Sims of Idaho. And and, and I was working there when uh, Reagan was elected. And I, I had urged uh, I had urged Reagan through friends of mine to, to hire uh, my old boss, uh, Cliff Hansen. But instead, he, he hired uh, Jim Watt, uh, who uh, I happen to know. And Jim called me and said, uh, Perry, uh, I want you to help me get through my confirmation hearing. So I helped him get through the confirmation hearing. I was his attorney behind him, answering questions. And, and, and what role was this for? Well, this is he became Secretary of the Interior. Right. He was Reagan's first, I'm sorry, Secretary of the Interior. Yeah. And uh, because he had a vision that was similar to Reagan's. And uh, I worked there, and then I, I left, and I was with a small law firm. I had an interim job with uh, Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman. And then uh, I started a small law firm, and then I had the opportunity to lead Mountain States Legal Foundation, which Joe Cooter started. Jim Watt was its first president, and uh, it litigated against the federal government. I did that for 30 years. Uh, I went to the Supreme Court three times, uh, was there on another case a, a fourth time, uh, set a national precedent called Adirondack Constructors Inc. v. Pena, in which uh, the Supreme Court ruled the federal government had to obey the Fifth Amendment guarantee of equal protection. So that was a, a huge victory. 
I left there and I was sort of, you know, looking for my next opportunity. And the phone rang one day and it was David Bernhardt, who happened to be Secretary of the Interior. Um, I had put my hat into the ring in January of 17 with the Trump people to be secretary. He picked uh, Zinke and now David Bernhardt uh, was there. He called me up. He said, Perry, I'd like to come back. You don't come back to Washington, be head of the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, Bureau of Land Management is huge in the West. It owns 245 million acres, a tenth of the country. And it's huge in, in, in places like my home state of Wyoming. So I, I gladly did that. It was uh, wonderful to serve there. And now I'm back home in uh, Evergreen, where we, my wife and I have been for about 34 years. Got a couple of kids, one's a Marine uh, overseas, where I was, interestingly enough, 50 years ago, and another son uh, uh, here in Colorado. So uh, it's uh, I'm doing a lot of writing, a lot of public speaking uh, on my experiences and uh, what I think we ought to be doing in the future. It's such a fantastic story. Um, the the thing that stands out to me immediately is that you know you're one of these these fascinating people who got to serve in both the Reagan and Trump White Houses. I think um, easily you know two of the most transformative uh, Republican presidents uh, of the last um, fifty years. I mean they were kind of they, they bookended two duds in my view. Um, and so oh, um, uh, compare and contrast that for me um you know the story of the trump administration is sort of missed opportunities when it came to personnel you know why weren't you brought in at the very beginning you should have been and instead you were brought in at the very end um whereas i think you have a different view of, of maybe how reagan did personnel walk me through how you think about that uh, well i was uh, i'm sort of in in the very beginning of the uh, of the reagan administration simply because the secretary of the interior the man who was going to be secretary of the interior called me i was the second call he placed to say i want you to come in with me and 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 I went in uh, with the the Trump thing. I you know I I don't know. Uh, I can't speak to why why those decisions were made. But uh, I think that the people that the president put in over at the department, David Bernhardt did a did a fantastic job. I was at the unveiling of his uh, official portrait last night, and you know Trump uh, signed the Great American Outdoors Act, uh, which uh, takes care of the federal lands. Uh, uh, five presidents and nine secretaries of the interior tried to do it, and Trump was the one who got it done. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that reflected the great job that uh, that Zinke and then uh, David Bernhardt did over the department, and I was glad to be a part of. Uh, there's, you know, the thing that was interesting to me coming in uh, all those years later was we had a hell of a time with the Office of Management and Budget under Reagan. We had a hell of a time with the Office of Management and Budget uh, uh, under Trump. And, you know, these people come in and, uh, you know, I just think, Are you guys on the same team? Are we working for the same president? For Because it doesn't feel like it. Mm -hmm. And it didn't feel like it back uh, when I was with Reagan. It didn't feel like it when I was with Trump. I'll give you an example. Uh, I ran the offshore oil and gas program. It's a huge, huge, huge program. And uh, Reagan made great advances. And one of the things that we did in that program was, uh, in the past, when these 40 million acres of cracks would be put available, the whole 40 million acres would not be available, say in the Gulf of Mexico and Central Gulf or the Western Gulf. And only selected tracks would be available. Guess who decided what tracks they were? Bureaucrats. Bureaucrats with absolutely no skin in the game that say, well, this track's up, this track's up, you know, and say, well, what does industry think? What do the people who are going to put 
hundreds of millions of dollars into this project. Where do they want to drill? Well, we don't care. <laughs> These are our tracks. So what Reagan did, what we did was we said the whole, whole 40 million acres is available. And in fact, what we said was the entire 1 billion acres on the outer, outer continental shelf. It's all available unless there's some unique uh, environmental reason why we don't want it to be available. And that was the exception because we wanted industry to make uh, that decision. And OMB was terrible. They said, oh, no, no, that'll reduce, reduce the bonus bids. You know, when the industry is bidding on these tracks, uh, if there's fewer tracks, they'll bid higher. And we said, no, no, if they make a discovery, we'll get big payoff downstream uh, with the royalties and, and the money that'll flow into the treasury. So how, do, oh, how does that work when when they drill on federal lands, the federal government gets a, a piece of that or how does that? Yeah, they get they pay a royalty. Mm -hmm. uh, it depends upon the statute It's 12 and a half, 16 and two thirds percent royalty mm -hmm. that's paid. And you can imagine uh, how the money rolls in. In fact, uh, the Great American Outdoors Act that Trump signed is all the money that goes in there comes from offshore oil and gas and onshore oil and gas revenues. And mm -hmm. so when Biden uh, reversed things, and had less and less. So uh, there's le fewer dollars going into taking care of our public lands mm -hmm. because we're, we're not drilling the way, the, the way we should. Uh, when we tried to do things with OMB uh, uh, under Trump, ran into the same problem. The same people coming in is like, you know, it wasn't the same people, but they talked like the same, same people. So that was a, a frustration. Uh, make sure everybody's on the same page. And you gotta congratulate Biden. All of his people are in lockstep compliance. Mm -hmm. Everybody, it doesn't matter. If you're at the Treasury Department, you talk about abortion. <laughs> That's the way they do it. And So let's go back a little bit and talk sure. about uh, some of the bureaucracy and the way it's, it's shaped. You know, some of the people that listen to this show may not have very much familiarity with uh, Interior, with the, the Bureau of Land Management. Give us um, more of a structure as to, you know, what, what that department looks like, how it operates, and that sort of thing. When I wrote my book, uh, Sagebrush Rebel, uh, Reagan's Battle with Environmental Extremists, Why It Matters Today, I have an entire preface on uh, the origin of the Department of the Interior. It was uh, created in 1853, uh, and it was essentially the, uh, uh, the, the Department of Everything Else, uh, because everything else that wasn't somewhere uh, went there. And so you got the Bureau of Indian Affairs, you got the Fish and Wildlife Service, you got the National Park Service, you got the Bureau of Land Management, you got the Offshore Oil and Gas Program, you got uh, the Trust Territories in the Pacific. Uh, it's all in there. And so uh, the mandate is is different, and it's uh, uh, very uh, very unique. You know, a lot of agencies they operate, they got tunnel vision going on, but the Park Service is supposed to take care of these federal lands set aside in perpetuity for people to enjoy. Bureau of Land Management got uh, 245 million acres, 10% of the country, but those lands are sort of what we call in the West multiple use lands. So you may have recreation, you may have antiquities, uh, you have oil and gas, you have grazing, you have wild horses, uh, you have all sorts of activities and and it's a, it's a what we call a working landscape. You're supposed to use it. The stuff that's really special and unique, that's set aside as a wilderness, and that's essentially off limits to any real activity except hiking, uh, or a national park. It's created a park or a monument. But if you want uh, oil and gas and mining and logging and all these kinds of things, 
uh, those lands are run by the Bureau of Land Management for that purpose. And the problem, Reagan's attitude was, let's do what Congress told us to do. Uh, that was Trump's attitude. Biden's attitude is lock it all up. It's all a special place that the Westerners can't use. Yeah, and my assumption is that a lot of these lands are, are in states who I assume don't get a lot of input as to you know how they're used. Tell us a little bit more about how those decisions are are traditionally made or were made, you know, under Reagan and under Trump? Well, the reason Reagan was successful was we had we had Jimmy Carter, who was terrible. Uh, he was not just a terrible president. He was terrible president for the West. Uh, and that was uh, he de- I wrote a book about it in 1994. He declared war on the West. Essentially, I'm going to do what the wacko environmentalists tell me to do. He was beholden to the environmental community, a first president to do that. And so uh, the West rebelled. People went nuts. And I'm not talking about Republican governors. I'm talking about all, all, all Democrats. Uh, and to the Democrat governors of the West, Montana, Wyoming, uh, Utah, Idaho, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, they were all livid, angry with Jimmy Carter. And so Reagan came in, he says, I'm going to quell the rebellion. I'm going to listen to the states. I'm going to listen to the governors. Jim Watt went out to a meeting with all the governors uh, in Wyoming and sat down with the governors and said, what do you want? What do you want us to do? And they went around the table. And at the end of the day, the rebellion was over. And that's, that's what happened. You know, in accordance with the law, we're not going to uh, drill in a national park, for example. That's that's off limits and never been a never been thought of. So uh, he quelled that rebellion. And so when uh, unfortunately Herman Walker Bush came in and said, "I'm going to be the environmental president," why? <laughs> uh, but he did, and he, he went back to some of the bad uh, Carter policies. And then uh, un, un, unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, Clinton came in. He went hog wild. Uh, more war in the West and Obama, more of the same. And that's why so many of us in the West were delighted when Trump uh, demonstrated that he uh, he got us. He understood what was going on. And I, for, when he first announced, I got to tell you the truth, uh, I thought, what? He's from Queens. What does he know about the American West? Well, he quickly got in. One of the first things he did was put Justice Gorsuch on the bench. Well, we had, prior to that, we had a bicoastal SCOTUS. Uh, we had two justices from California, and the rest, the other seven, were from the East Coast. Uh, you know, two from Jersey, the uh, uh, Pinpoint, Georgia, where Justice Thomas was is from, and, and the rest from New York. What do they know about the American West? And so, for the first time since Byron White from Colorado was on the bench, he put Justice Gorsuch on the bench, and Gorsuch brought a Western mentality. And where the, was Gorsuch from? Colorado. Oh, interesting. And, and he has an interesting connection to the Reagan administration. His mother, uh, Ann Gorsuch, was the first female head of the Environmental Protection Agency mm-hmm. under Ronald Reagan. And she got destroyed by Washington, D.C., by the deep state. They just really hammered her and drove her, essentially drove her out of town. Well, Neil Gorsuch, young Neil Gorsuch, is in high school at this time, and he's watching what's happening to his mother, and he's horrified. So this is the Neil Gorsuch that's sitting on the Supreme Court who went through the Supreme Court confirmation hearing. So he gets Washington in a way that's 
totally unique, but he's truly a Coloradan. He's a lawyer who uh, understands the West. He understands mining and ranching and all these activities. One of the things, a little inside baseball, uh, all the justices have clerks. And uh, in the past, all the clerks participated in what's called a cert pool. So when you file a petition for review, a petition for writ of certiorari to be heard by the court, uh, only one clerk would read a petition. And so uh, whether you got heard by the court rested on that one clerk. Uh, Gorsuch came in, so we're not doing that. My clerk's going to read every single petition, every single petition, 80,000 petitions. My clerk's going to read every single one because there's things I want to be heard on. There's, there's things I want to weigh in on. And so he's made a huge difference. President Trump changed the waters of the United States rule. Uh, which is another inside baseball thing, but it's the Clean Water Act. And what the Clean Water Act says is the, uh, the Corps of Engineers and the EPA have jurisdiction over waters of the United States. It's a technical term. Uh, the word wetland is not in the statute, but the agency claims jurisdiction over wetland as they defined it. And in case after case after case, the Supreme Court has tried to jump in and say, hold a second, you don't have the authority to regulate that parking lot because it's wet. Yeah. So um, I, I exaggerate, but not so much. And so Trump reversed the bad policies of the past on waters of the United States. I had a client who was getting really hammered by the EPA uh, because of the waters of the United States rule, and Trump reversed it. In fact, mentioned my client in his uh, in his talk on this. Said, "There's a guy in Wyoming. He's really getting hurt by this." And uh, and, and then also, uh, President, President Trump came to the rescue of two ranchers in Oregon who had been tried, taken to court by the Justice Department under Obama, uh, and tried uh, not with trespass. They had lit a fire to prevent fire from coming onto their property. They, they lit a fire, and it got out of control. It happens all the time. And instead of being prosecuted for trespass, they were trespass. They were they were prosecuted for terrorism, <laughs> which is a mandatory five years in the clink. And here's these elderly men, uh, five years in the clink because of the Justice Department, because of Obama and President Trump. Uh, I did an op-ed for Fox News on it. Said he ought to pardon them, and he, and he did. He he did it, pardon them. And so uh, uh, Trump demonstrated his bona fides as far as I'm concerned about Western issues, and he's the one who let the West participate in what I call the fracking revolution to help us become energy independent, which we did in July of 2019, mm -hmm. and uh, first time in 52 years. So zooming back out, I, I think the core premise on which all policy in this area needs to rest on is, is the one stat that is, is mind boggling. What percentage of the land in the United States is owned by the federal government? A third of the country. A third of the country. 1.7 billion acres offshore, and then a third of the onshore acres. One third of the onshore. It's not all BLM. It's not all Park Service. You got Department of Energy. You got the uh, Department of Defense. But yeah, a third of the country. And so you go to some rural counties in the West, including Clark County, Las Vegas. 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% of the county is owned by the federal government. It's the Forest Service, it's the Park Service, it's the Bureau of Land Management. And so how are you going to pay for schools? 
for law enforcement, for hospitals? How are you going to keep the kids and the grandkids coming back to those communities if the federal government's not saying, mother, may I, uh, with regard to economic activity? And, and give me some examples of states that are particularly egregiously occupied. Well, Idaho, I think 80, Idaho, 85 percent. Uh, Nevada's close to that. And now what's the reason that these lands are, 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 are sequestered away and not allowed to be developed on typically? The well, stated reason and then the real reason. Well, well I mean, the, the real, I mean, essentially, one of the reasons is because uh, those lands didn't really meet the threshold for homesteading lands. So, no. you know, they you, you go out there, you homestead, you got X number of acres and you develop it oh. over a period of time and then it's yours forever. So, so, so tell me about homesteading, because it is, uh, I think, the story of how right. the west of the Mississippi was was civilized to begin with. Um, sure. wh what is homesteading? What's the well, history of it? And, well, and how does it I mean, play into uh, this? You know, under the Homesteading Acts, essentially, and it wasn't just west of the Mississippi, it was east of the Mississippi, as the Louisiana Purchase and so forth, essentially saying, uh, you know, I, I, there was 160 acres. Uh, you got 160 acres, and if you could prove it up, and if you could uh, develop it and make it economic uh, in an X period of time, I forget the uh, years, uh, then it was yours. You got title to it. It's just like uh, on the mining law. If you can go out on uh, public land that's open, not parks, not a wilderness area, but public land that's open, and this is still true today, and you can make a valuable mineral discovery that's economic, then you own that. Uh, that's yours to develop, and that's the attitude of the United States. Some of this land wasn't uh, didn't lend itself to that until about 1976. The attitude was the orientation of the United States Congress and the government was disposal. We're going to get rid of this land, which is what the founders intended. Look at Illinois, for example. Illinois, uh, until the 1850s or so, 100% was owned by the federal government. In Illinois today. Uh, I think 2% is owned by, by the federal government. It's 99, 98% mm -hmm. is owned by. Why? Because it got sold. It got sold in accordance with what the founders wanted to do. And the people in Illinois were crying out for it. Sell this land, make it available to our citizens. And eventually that happened. It didn't happen in the West. And the door was closed on that in 1976 when they passed what's called the Bureau of Land Management Organic Act or the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, and that says we're not going to dispose of anything anymore. So it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem for these rural communities. And you, even an urban community like Las Vegas, 85% of that county is owned by the Bureau of Land Management. Because of an act of Congress, uh, we were able to sell some of that land. Yeah essentially, and we can only sell land if Congress tells us to sell it. Mm -hmm. Congress is in charge. And Congress passed a law that said, hey, we want to be able to uh, develop these lands uh, for schools, for communities, for homes. And so uh, it, it's a very successful program. But the only reason Las Vegas is growing today is because the Bureau of Land Management is giving up its ownership of the land on which the city is built. Mm -hmm. So to take Las Vegas as an example, I've seen these great pictures from like the 50s and 60s of the federal government literally detonating like nuclear weapons, <laughs> like within view of of Las Vegas. You know, you can see kind of like the skyline and then out there there's like big mushroom cloud. What are, what are some of the other like 
really egregious examples of of the federal government, um, you know, doing things on on that land to the detriment of the locals. Well, I, you know, I'm, uh, I, I, I don't, I think that's a, sort of an anomaly. I, I mean, I had a case several years ago with a family in in Utah. Uh, the guy had mining property and ranching property, and in, uh, in the lead up uh, during World War II, when we were trying to get the Japanese uh, troops out of those islands, uh, the army came to him and uh, said, "Hey, can we uh, explode items on your property? And we'll clean it up <laughs> afterwards." And being a patriot, he said, "Of course, you know, we got Marines over there trying to trying to get the Japanese out, so we don't have to have a big invasion of the mainland." And uh, unfortunately, the government lied. <laughs> it never came back and cleaned up the land. Uh, we took them to court on it, and uh, you know, we got one answer after another. We were not weren't or not successful at it. But uh, you know, uh, the, 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 there's a, a line attributed to Chief Red Cloud of years ago, and he said, uh, uh, "The white man made us many promises. He only kept but one. He promised to take our land, and he took it." Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I mean, it's sort of a uh, same spirit we have out west. The idea that hey, government, you made some promises here. You made some promises we're going to be able to graze our cattle and graze our sheep. You made a promise that we could develop mines. You made a promise that we're going to harvest our trees, be able to harvest the trees and not watch them burn down during the summer mm-hmm. and sweep into our communities. So the government's made many promises. Congress has made many promises in that regard, and it's in statute. But we have people like Biden saying, "Nah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that." Look, I'll give you a good example. In, in October of 2019, shortly after I took over running the Bureau of Land Management, I gave a speech. I participated in a panel before the Society of Environmental Journalists, which is sort of an oxymoron. <laughs> you know, you're either a journalist or you're an environmentalist. And so, I was asked a question by the Washington Post person there saying, well, all the Democrats are saying, leave it in the ground, don't develop it. And I said, uh, I said, that's, she said, what do you all think of that? I was on a panel. And I said, well, I'll answer the question. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. Do you have any idea how much we get from the Outer Continental Shelf and from federal lands and how important that is to Western communities and and, and Colorado? A, A third of the money in New Mexico uh, a third of the budget for schools comes from the oil and gas industry in New Mexico, one third. And I said, that's positively insane. And I said, if the Democrats really want to do this, bring it up, bring it up to Congress, present it as a bill, because I think the American people will reject it. Well, of course, Biden knew that too. And he didn't bring it up as a bill, despite the fact federal law says you've got to have those sales and you got to have four of them every year in every Bureau of Land Management state, Biden says, I'm not going to do that. A federal judge in June of uh, uh, 2022 orders him to do it. He says, I'm not going to do that. Uh, In fact, June of 21, excuse me. And he says, I'm not going to do that. And uh, you just, it's the most lawless administration in history where they simply say, we don't care what the courts say. Oh, we're going to do what we want. So all these things are laid out in statute. And that's what Reagan did. That's what Trump did. Hey, if it's in the law, we're going to implement the law. Uh, you want solar panels? We'll put in solar panels. You want wind farms? We'll put in wind farms. You want oil and gas development? We'll have oil and gas development because that's the way to go. But that's what the law provides. Biden says, I don't care. I don't care what the law says. So 
part of the argument that the 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 leftists will make is and, and what they prey on is this sensibility that every single acre of land that the federal government owns is this pristine wilderness and, and on every square foot there is a unique species that will be eradicated for all time if if you were to develop anything on it and and really what you people want is to turn all of the west into a strip mall anyway um obviously these are all like ridiculous caricatures of the situation so so i guess on the on the two sides of that coin what actually is that land like how much of it is actually that that like gem tier land that that people actually um imagine when they think of a federally protected land and then what would it be used for if it wasn't being held by the federal government right uh well what it can still be used for those things even held by the federal government in fact that's what congress says Mm -hmm. congress says you will have grazing you will have mining you will have oil and gas you will have logging uh we have been locking up lands, I mean, frankly, since Theodore Roosevelt and the Antiquities Act of 1906. The Antiquities Act of 1906 said there are these amazing artifacts of past civilizations in the Southwest, and we're talking New Mexico, Arizona, uh, in the Southwest, and there are bad people going out there and thieving on them, and we got to stop that. So, Mr. President, you have the authority under the Antiquities Act. Uh, fast forward to 1964, the Wilderness Act. Oh, we have some unique places that people really have never been. Uh, it's way in the middle of nowhere up on mountaintops, and it's gorgeous, and it's pristine, and it's just the way God made them, and we want to preserve that. And so we lock that up as a wilderness. Uh, we have wild and scenic rivers that we've set aside. So all this stuff that's really special and unique, we've locked it up. It's a wilderness. It's a wild and scenic river. You know, it's a national monument, all these things. But there's so much else out there that's just, it's the middle of nowhere. And there might be great uh, oil and gas properties there, might be uh, timber. Uh, There's certainly grazing lands. Uh, A tremendous amount of Bureau of Land Management land is uh, for uh, grazing and sustains a rural community. You know, this West that people love, Oh, I love going out and seeing the dude ranches, love seeing the cowboys, love seeing the cattle herds, all that good stuff. Hey, that exists because those ranchers are able to use Bureau of Land Management land or National Forest Service land to graze their cattle during the summer or to graze their sheep during the summer. Uh, if they didn't have that available to them, they have to shut down mm-hmm. and subdivide, divide up that ranch into uh, you know little ranchettes for rich people to go in and have fun during the summer. It wouldn't be a working landscape, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's the difference. You know, the distance from my hometown of Cheyenne to Yellowstone National Park is the same as driving from Washington, D.C. to Boston. Uh, nobody in on the East Coast thinks of making that drive. You know, say, well, I'll catch a plane, you know, <laughs> head over to LaGuardia mm-hmm. or um, over to Logan. And, uh, but... Or, or take the train, but you know that's it's a long way. You know, recently, Wyoming has had uh, at the state legislature we're talking about outlawing electric vic, uh, vehicles uh, simply because it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but somebody drove from Cheyenne to Casper the other day. It took them thirteen hours in an EV because uh, all the time they had to stop and get a recharge. So uh, these great distances, people have no concept of the great distances that we have, the wide open spaces that we have. Uh, we like to say in Wyoming, Wyoming is what the West was. And it's still that way. 
It's still that way despite the fact that we've sustained ourselves on a fossil fuel economy, an agricultural economy, uh, you know, a trona economy. Uh, all of these things that we have done, we've protected our landscape because it's where we live. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk about what is Earth Day. You know, for a logger, for a miner, for a rancher, every day is Earth mm -hmm. Day because if that rancher and that ranching family is not taking care of that landscape, they're not going to have anything to pass on. So, so, so tell me about that. I, I think it facially makes sense what you're saying, but we obviously know that in plenty of cases, you know, people who are in, in the resource extraction business, they don't take care of the land. So, so, so where is that push and pull? What, what are the cases where the incentives are poorly aligned and people aren't actually taking care of the land and, and how can policy exist to make sure that, 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 that positive cycle where people can, can use the land to make it productive, but also preserve it for many generations can occur as well. Well, historically, that's certainly been the case, mm -hmm. um, and it was simply uh, it was simply the mentality was, for the, for example, with regard to mining, is get the ore out of the ground, uh, high grade, not necessarily high grade, but get the best ore, the ore that you can sell, and the rest you throw over the side. You know, technologically, today we go back and look at some of those sites, and there's ore that we can still use that's uh, you know in the in the overburden that they've tossed aside. Uh, the United States, the American people, uh, have done a better job than any place in the world of taking care of lands. We have the Clean Water Act, we have the Clean Air Act, we have the Superfund statute, and it's got its flaws, but the whole idea was we want to make sure that we're taking care of the land, that we're requiring that people do the right thing uh, when they're extracting resources. And I, I stack the American uh, natural resource environmental record up against any country in the world. And that's the crazy thing about Biden's plan. Uh, Biden's plan is let's get oil and gas from the Soviet Union. Let's get oil and gas from Venezuela. Let's get oil and gas from Iran, who couldn't give uh, a darn about how they leave the planet. I mean, parts of the Soviet Union are a moonscape, uh, unlivable today simply because they don't have our environmental ethic. But we have a good environmental ethic. And when Biden says, oh, we want somebody else to get this and send it to us, you look where they're getting the cobalt. They got little kids, basically infants, going around, you know, on their hands and knees gathering the cobalt we're going to use in our electric vehicles because we're protecting the planet. It's positively insane. So I think we have the laws uh, that exist out there. But the environmental movement uh it didn't go away. You know, what we said back in the, in the day regarding the environmental movement, it was the watermelons. They're green on the outside and red on the inside. They didn't want to really save the planet. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to tell you what to do. And so uh, uh, I think we have a great, a, a great record and we can get the resources. We have the resources. We can be energy independent again uh, and have lower prices and have American men and women working at these high paying jobs because uh, we've got the talent and the ability as Reagan understood back in the 80s to, to make it happen. So one more little bit of a devil's advocate here, though, you know, the, those laws that you're endorsing, like the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act and, and the Superfund statutes and such. I mean, isn't the argument that, you know, it was it was the left pushing that got those statues in place in the first place and and so they they need to keep pushing in their mind because uh 
you know, the so so that you know you can endorse the status quo anti laws that they passed thirty years ago. You know, what 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 are what would you say against something like that? Well, it was totally bipartisan. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't something that was jammed down our throat. You look mm-hmm. at the Endangered Species Act, which has turned into a terrible mess. Uh, Congress intended one thing. Congress was thinking about uh, what a hundred species. Now we got thousands. Now we got thousands on the list, and. Uh, the plan was, the idea was, back in 73 when the Endangered Species Act was passed, the idea was, hey, if we have a species that's about to become extinct, we'll just buy up the property where it's becoming extinct and we'll protect it as if the government could. But that was the theory. Uh, and it was bipartisan. I, I, I think there were one or two votes in each house that voted against the Endangered Species Act. Uh, and so it was a bipartisan thing. It, was, it wasn't something the, the, the left jammed down our throats. No, it's a good idea. Hey, we don't want Golden Eagle to go out of existence. We don't want to lose the manatee. Uh, we like these things. We don't want to protect them. But we've gone, my friend Rob Gordon, now at the Heritage Foundation, who was with me with Trump, uh, he said years ago, we've gone from protecting the warm and fuzzies to protecting the cold and slimies. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff that's on the list are, you know, snakes and lizards and all this kinds of stuff nobody conceived of being. Mm-hmm. And they're being used candidly not to protect lands, not to guarantee that we have clean air and clean water and safe uh, safe habitat. Uh, they're being used to stop activity. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. The, the northern spotted owl, they say, oh, the northern spotted owl is about to become extinct because of logging. And so they shut down logging. Thousands of people in the Pacific Northwest Washington, Oregon, Northern California lost their jobs. Entire towns were destroyed uh, simply because protect the owl. And now we know Fish and Wildlife Service said, so sorry, our bad. Uh, it wasn't the logging. It was the barred owl. The barred owl's killing the northern spotted owl. So that's the real problem. So so the Fish and Wildlife Service now out killing those owls. You know? <laughs> uh, you know? Same thing with, uh, for example, in the in the Nevada desert, the, the tortoise was endangered. Oh my gosh, the tortoise is endangered. What do we do? Oh, well, let's stop grazing because, you know, those cows, they go out and stomp on the tortoises, which is ridiculous, a stupid assertion. It was the ravens. The ravens were killing the tortoises. And I talked to the Fish and Wildlife Service when it was going on. I said, why don't you just kill the ravens? Oh, Perry, we couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> You're killing owls. So... You know, we see that time and time again, but uh, it's now used to stop activity. Well, you know, we got a lithium plant that we greenlit in the Trump administration. It will provide 25% of the world's lithium in Nevada, in the Nevada desert. It's a beautiful uh, mine site. And they found a plant out there and they said, oh, this plant's uh, unique and special. And so uh, we got to stop. Uh, the lithium mine. So, the, you know, it's it's always something. And uh, so I, I, I don't accept that argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a bipartisan thing. Everybody supports clean air, clean water, safe lands. Uh, nobody's against that. But we want to have growth. Yeah. So the element of this that is so frustrating to me is that uh, something like what you just mentioned, 25% of the country's lith- of the world's lithium could have been fulfilled by that one right. plant. Um, the United States is not Belgium. It's not some tiny European landlocked country with, you know, limited resources that it constantly has to be trading for in order to get more of. It's a transcontinental empire with billions of acres of land. And basically, it seems like every natural resource you could possibly want. Yeah. What is being left on the table 
by the lockup of all of this land what what exists under that ground or above that ground or in that sky that that we are just not taking advantage of that would be huge towards our prosperity independence self-sufficiency and so on well of course at the top of the list is development of our fossil fuels and uh, 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 we have enough uh, you take a place uh, that's partially private and partially federal the permian basin which is in new mexico federal land and texas which is private land and it's second only to Alaska. Imagine that. A small piece in New Mexico and Texas has more resources than every place else in the country than Alaska. I mean, Alaska's number one and so vast. And so uh, we have those huge resources available to us. Who knows what other ore bodies we have? Clinton locked up a bunch north of Yellowstone National Park. Uh, we got all these resources that are available. We know we can develop them economically. You cannot compete uh, economically when with the world. You have to have a what we call a world-class discovery. It can't be, oh, this, this works only here. No, it's something that's sold internationally. And so when we make a world-class deposit in America, it's world-class. And it needs to be developed in, in accordance with our environmental laws. One of the things Reagan recognized, I mean, there were three things Reagan wanted to do because we were hurting back. Uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, you know, uh, we had uh, the trifecta, the inflation and interest rate and unemployment. It was a terrible time. And he believed that we developed our own resources and we could solve three problems. One, our economy. Uh, two, our energy problem. And number three, our, our geopolitical situation. And what I mean by that is this idea that when we're not beholden to anybody, we can decide to do things geopolitically that are in our interest. We don't have to say, oh, gosh, we don't want to make those people mad because we depend upon them for oil. Mm -hmm. We don't want to make uh, Iran angry. We don't want to make the Russians angry because we get X from them. And he, we could make decisions on the basis of that. When we became energy independent, uh, if there ever was a time that we went to war to uh, ensure our ability to have oil and gas resources. If there ever was that time, that time is no more. And if they, we ever sent Marines like me and my older son uh, to war because of oil, we won't have to do that anymore under, under President Trump simply because we got it here. And if we want to do something that's contrary to what the Saudis are thinking about, then sorry, uh, this isn't our interest. This is what we need to do for us. And, and our people. We're not going to send our people into battle uh, for, for that cause. And so it's not just jobs in America. It's not just cheap energy in America, which drives our economy. It's a geopolitical thing where we can, you're talking about how we are essentially an empire, how we can operate as an empire from the standpoint of saying we're making decisions, America first, decisions that, that we need to make, not oh, geez, because we didn't develop energy in the Permian Basin, we're going to have to go to war. Sorry, kids. Uh, that's insane. How is our current situation um, self-inflicted under the, the current administration? We, you know, gas prices are very high. We're having to um, kind of play this, you know, diplomatic game with the Saudis, uh, you know, as you've mentioned to, to and, and we've, of course, had to, uh, you know, release, um, uh, a ton of petroleum from the strategic reserve. Didn't uh, have to. Yeah. Biden did it. Yeah. Tell us about it. 
Well, it's all self-inflicted. Day one, day one, he walks in and cancels the Keystone XL pipeline. Day one. And now they're saying... Can you, can you talk a little bit about what the Keystone XL pipeline is? I feel like it's just one of these terms that gets thrown around. Like, <laughs> like Keystone XL. What, what exactly was essentially, it? Essentially a pipeline out. And, and we greenlit it. Well, I mean, I, I, I participate in the decision making when it came into Montana. Mm-hmm. I mean, when it crossed the border. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, we were all there. Uh, you know, got the call from the state director of Bureau of Land Management, state director of Montana. Say, okay, they crossed the border. There, It's mm-hmm. in the United States. So is this a pipeline, pipeline from Canada? Pipeline from Canada, through the, down through the United States and then uh, to refineries here to mix in with uh, other uh, uh, petroleum products uh, that are here domestically. And now the Biden administration, nearly two years later, is saying, oh, our bad. Yeah, that was thousands of jobs. Yeah, that would have been a big deal. Sorry. Uh, but, you know, no intention to, to go back. Uh, uh, they canceled the canceled Keystone XL pipeline. They uh, said no oil and gas leases, no more we're statutorily mandated to hold a lease every quarter, a lease sale every quarter, say state of Wyoming. Okay, what do you got Wyoming that's available for oil and gas leasing? Make it available every quarter. Uh, they, you know, for I think for eight, eight, eight quarters, they didn't do any. I think they did one small one. Uh, you have to go back to the Truman administration to find a time when a president has leased less oil and gas resources than Biden did. Uh, we're moving backwards. Uh, plus, they have at the Department of Interior all these draconian rules, the methane release, and all these other things they're uh, forcing on the industry, essentially saying, uh, uh, you know, we're going to make it harder for you. You may have a permit. You may be drilling right now, but we're going to make it tough for you. And then they have these uh, insane policies with regard to financing. They're essentially telling the banks do not give money to oil and gas. That's a bad thing. You can't be so, you, what Reagan understood was that the, the majors did not make the discoveries. You know, Exxon uh, isn't making big discoveries. Chevron's not making big discoveries. It's wildcatters, what we call wildcatters in the West, these independent oil and gas operators that, you know, the got an idea and they think I can find energy there. My, my late friend, Mick McMurray, who uncovered using fracking, uh, the biggest gas field in history, uh, the Jonah field in Pinedale, outside of Pinedale, Wyoming. Uh, he was a wildcatter, a former construction guy uh, building highways. And he said, you know, I think I'd do something good in the oil patch. He got in the oil patch, hired the best geologist he could, made those big discoveries. And then Reagan also knew that it would be by innovative technologies like fracking. And, and fracking's not all that innovative. It was invented in the 1800s, 1850s. Uh, it was really put into modern day use in about 1947. So it's been around for a long time. But fracking produces uh, 90% of our natural gas in this country. If we don't have fracking, we don't have natural gas. And so uh, they essentially, the financial people at Treasury, all speaking with one voice, uh, have made it tougher and tougher and tougher for my guys these wildcatters, the oil and gas people, to get the financing they need to drill these speculative wells and make the big discoveries that we have to have. But we have enough discoveries already. We don't have to rely on future discoveries. Can you talk a little bit more about the financial warfare? Because, you know, this is one of our concerns is that you think about costs of capital uh, in the United States and, and how it skews the composition of our economy. 
it becomes so much more profitable to create just another, you know, software as a service company when, um, you know, there's all these different t- tricks that they play on anything capital intensive, whether it's in manufacturing or resource extraction. What does that war against um, against the the natural resource industry look like right now from the financial? Well, I'm outside. I'm outside my wheelhouse here. Mm-hmm. Uh but I just know, uh, you know, what I've read and uh, what I've heard people in the oil patch say, it's harder and harder and harder to get financing. Uh, if you're in the oil and gas, you, you see, you know, Biden says, you know, when when, when Biden realized he had it, it, it made a mess of things and, and started to pounding the table or whispering or whatever the heck he was doing at the minute uh, <laughs> uh, with his voice, uh, he was saying, uh, oil and gas industry is making such tremendous profits it ought to be drilling more. Drill more, drill more, and uh, drill more, drill more, and uh, doing all this crazy stuff. Uh, at the same time, essentially, he's saying to these people, and, and oh, by the way, I'm still going to drive you out of business. I still want to kill you. Uh, who's going who's gonna to invest money? You know, I hear you, Mr. President. You want me to drill more, but uh, your Treasury Department is also telling me that they're going to drive me out of business. Your, your press secretary says she's going you're going to drive me out of business. Why in the world? And so, I mean, what message does it send? Well, and, and then the regulatory inconsistency as well, right? I mean, more than anything explicit that any of these financial institutions are doing, if I was an investor that could you know invest across sectors, I would look at the Keystone XL pipeline and it'd be like, I'm never investing in a large pipeline project ever again. Right. Why would you? You have this in like literally every four years, it's like, oh, you might have a nuclear bomb dropped on your entire project, depending on who gets elected exactly. to the presidency. It's a joke. I mean, it's no way for a serious country with all of this natural plenty to run um, its its processes. And and people then complain that we don't have a manufacturing sector in the country anymore. It's like, well, well how, how, long it, it. how long has it been since we built the last oil and gas refinery? Well, you should know. Uh, you yeah, tell yeah. me. <laughs> Decades. Decades. Wow. And, uh, you know, and and and. and you know, and EPA coming in, there's one in Ohio. Uh, there's one in Ohio that's been partially or fully shut down simply because of environmental issues by the EPA. Mm. The regulators are coming in and they're tra- having trouble getting that back online because they're dealing with these regulators. Yeah. Uh, you know, I said at the top or near the top, I was saying that this Biden administration speaks with one voice. Uh, this, this is a unique thing I've not seen in the past, essentially. Here you have the Treasury Department who ought to be talking about our economies, talking about abortion. Uh, so it's like that on all issues. Regardless of the issue involved, uh, then they're, they're, going to take, they're, they're going to take positions, uh, and so even if it's outside their bailiwick, outside their jurisdiction. And so you have an entire administration that has declared war on the oil and gas industry. It's not just that Janet, uh, Secretary Yellen uh, Halen over at the Department of the Interior, not just that she uh, is is not doing oil and gas leasing as the Congress has ordered her to do. It's simply that Treasury is going after the people with regard to the financing. It's the EPA is going after them with regard to the regulations. It's the Corps of Engineers going after them with regard to the wetlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, what Biden calls an all-of-government approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a, a scary, a darn thing. No wonder the economy's not growing in areas that we need it to grow. 
I want to talk about uh, to close out, you know, the kind of the flip side of this, which is where where maybe uh, the government could be doing a better job in terms of cleaning up the environment, and taking care of it. One of the cool things about the Trump administration was that it actually was better at cleaning up the environment um, than the Obama administration in some regards, specifically as it related to Superfund sites. Um, uh, what are Superfund sites? And, and, and uh, you know, tell us a little bit about how, you know, without being, you know, environmental crazies, Republican administrations can sometimes do a better job at actually being good stewards of the environment. The the problem with Superfund, and Superfund was passed uh, during the lame duck Congress. Mm-hmm. So Reagan's elected. Uh, the Republicans take over the Senate. It's, it, it's a huge landslide. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, only weeks before Reagan was not supposed to beat Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. He not only beat Jimmy Carter, I think 12 Senate seats switched. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a large part because the war on the West and the, and not just the war on the American West, but the war on essentially Jimmy Carter, Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so Superfund was passed. And the whole thing of Superfund is uh, we've got we've got these sites out there uh, where industrial activity took place at a time. Maybe we didn't really fully understand the impact. We didn't know what that chemical did long term. We didn't know what that. Uh, waste disposal mechanism method uh, would how that would affect things uh, decades later, and so we go in and we 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 find all these things and we say we got to find a way to clean this up, and so Superfund was a way to say we would designate sites as Superfund, and then the government would have the authority to go in and sue everybody who had anything to do with that site, uh, and any potentially liable party, we would sue them and say, you got to pony up, you got to help us pay for this. So uh, that was a good idea in concept, but the the way it was implemented is simply the federal government said, we want, we want to hang some pelts on the wall. We want to, you know, we want to shoot some folks and we want to hang their carcass on the bulkhead. Uh, simply said, hey, good for us. We, we drove him out of business, good for us. Instead, what they ought to be doing is saying, how can everybody work together to clean up this site? Uh, one of the things that's unique about, and I mentioned it, uh, some of these mine sites is there's, there's good ore there. There's stuff that 100 years ago we couldn't use. Today we can use it. In fact, it's at the top of some of the stuff we can use. But nobody will touch a Superfund site because they'll be a, a potentially liable party and sued by the government. You want to take part ownership of this mine so you can help clean it up and process that ore body? Absolutely not. (laughs) My lawyers tell me I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. We had a situation, you talk about Obama bad uh, on the the environment. Uh, We had a situation in Colorado uh, where uh, the EPA administrators, the EPA was fooling around with an old mine site, blew out, uh, the barrier that was on this mine site and spilled garbage down the river, turned it orange uh, for for months at a time, infuriated the, the Indians who lived nearby, infuriated the ranchers and the towns that were nearby. I mean, it made the headlines all across the country, this yellow river that the administrator of the EPA, and, and she said, oh, no, it's not my responsibility. Oh, I didn't do it. When and, was this? 
This was in the near the tail end of the Obama administration. Mm. Dumped all this uh, toxic garbage. Did you find a way to blame it on Republicans? Uh, no, they didn't blame it on Republicans. They just refused to accept uh, responsibility. Mm. And so, so they took steps uh, to so-called solve the problem, but didn't consult with the local people on how how we can make this work, how we can do it the most effective way. And so it's uh, it, it's it, I hate to analogize everything to COVID, but it's like COVID. We're in charge. We know what we're doing. Here's what you have to do, and do it, or you're a terrible, evil, awful, no good person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the way they operate with regard to Superman, with regard to the endangered species, with regard to something we haven't even mentioned, which is the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires these huge EISs uh, every time you want to uh, do anything important. Yeah. Well. Uh, hopefully, in the next presidential administration, there'll be there'll be more folks like yourself going into to help write the relationship uh, between the federal government and the West. Uh, Perry, where can people keep up with everything that you're writing and doing and thinking about? Well, thanks very much. Uh, I, I'm on Sage. I'm on Twitter, uh, Sagebrush Rebel, uh, at Sagebrush Rebel, and you can follow me there. Uh, you know, I get a lot of articles out. I just uh, I just did an op-ed uh, for the for the Washington Examiner on federalism. Reagan was wonderful on federalism. He really understood it. And no president since, except uh, President Trump, he got it too. Uh, but, you know, Biden's going the opposite, totally opposite way. You saw what Biden said the other day on this uh, so-called uh, gender-affirming surgeries. Uh, you know, So he was asked by uh, some reporter, uh, what do you think about that? And he said, oh, that's legally and morally wrong. Well, yeah, I think it's morally right. But as far as legally, it's certainly within uh, the 10th Amendment. It's a true part of federalism that we're going to let states do what states want to do unless it's totally within the federal government's bailiwick. So I had an op-ed on that. I had an op-ed recently in the American Thinker on uh, Biden. What a terrible, evil, awful, no good person he is. But more importantly, why everybody in Washington for 50 years knew he should never be president and took no action. And there's historical uh, ways in which uh, people have stepped forward um, and said, no, this person can't be here, or this person can't be there simply because they're unqualified for the job. So I'm there and uh, all my op-eds are, are, are featured on my t- Twitter, uh, which is at Sagebrush Rebel. And it's, uh, I, I, I call myself a Sagebrush Rebel, but the Sagebrush Rebel's named after Ron Reagan. He was the first Sagebrush Rebel, called himself that, and he said, uh, when it comes to the Sagebrush Rebellion, he said, count me in. That's awesome. Well, Perry, thank you for everything you do. And thank you for coming on our podcast. My pleasure. Great to be with y'all. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly had a fantastic time taping it. Uh, be sure to follow Mr. Sagebrush Rebel on the Twitter machine. Uh, he uh, tweets a little bit like a boomer, but in the best possible way. He is really exceptionally bright, um, knows so much about his issue and truly cares about it. And is exactly the kind of person that you would hope would get involved in national politics in administrations. Just someone who spent his entire life trying to defend the place that he calls home. Uh, just a fantastic guy. Glad he was able to spend some time with us uh, taping. Uh, 
as always, be sure to check out the backlog of this podcast and go and rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you're on YouTube uh, looking at our glorious mugs, be sure to subscribe and hit the little bell icon. Uh, we're getting close to, I think, 2,000 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, thousands of you are listening every week. It's very strange. Um, I'm still shocked every day, but we're very grateful that you guys do that. Uh, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. Be sure to email us if you'd like to get involved in politics. Uh, don't just sit around, uh, you know, dicking around on YouTube. Actually come do something. And we'll be sure to see you guys next week for another episode of Moment of Truth. Thank you. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.